All right, let's get started with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day and the opportunity that we have to be uh, the body of Christ gathered together to worship you. We thank you especially during this hour for your word and the opportunity we have to study your word, Lord. Uh, We ask that you would open our hearts and minds so that we could truly understand what you're trying to teach us from your word and also that we'd be able to apply those lessons to our lives. Uh, so that we would be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for your great love for your church. Uh, we thank you for your love for Hope Bible Church. Uh, we ask, Lord, that uh, as we uh, live out our lives as the body of Christ, that we would um, take the commands in the scripture uh, seriously to love one another to encourage one another, to lift one another up, uh, so that we would always be uh, encouraging one another and spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Uh, We thank you so much for your love, Lord, uh, that comes first, your love that uh, worked itself out in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ for our sins. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Okay, Um, so we're uh, going through the book of Revelation. We're on lesson number 11. Uh, It's a 39-part series. Uh, So uh, we have this one and two more for this quarter, uh, and then two more quarters uh, to go through the book of Revelation. But today we'll be going through the final letter to the seven churches. So the seventh church, the Laodicea church, that's characterized as a lukewarm church. I'm going to talk about what that means. Uh, So we're going to look at this letter to Laodicea. We're going to look at the correspondent, who it came from, the church, who it goes to, the city that that church was in, so the surrounding context and circumstances, the concern that Christ has for this church, the command that he has, and the counsel that he gives. Uh, if you'll remember, where uh, John's on the island of Patmos, the, he sends these seven messengers with the seven letters. They go to Ephesus, they go to Smyrna, they go to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and the road comes around through Hierapolis to Laodicea, the last church. And so that's where we will be today. Uh, but first, some review. So, uh, last time... Um, Something came up, and I wanted to go back to it for just a second. Uh, Somebody asked me after class, uh, can there be two meanings to the same passage of Scripture? And uh, the short answer is no. There can't be two meanings to a passage of Scripture. It only has one meaning. It can have multiple applications. For example, prophecies can have an, they have only one meaning, but they can have an application to the, uh, the people that received the prophecy at the time. But there could also be a future application um, as well. Um, prophecy can be like that. Um, But there's still only one meaning to the passage, what what that passage means. Uh, And I want to make sure that's clear when we look at uh, passages of Scripture. Now, the other thing that I have done in this class is I have actually gone through passages of Scripture and pointed out to you that there is some disagreement among... Uh, well-respected, good and godly men who have written commentaries about what that one meaning is. Sometimes there's disagreement among uh, followers of Christ about what that 
meaning is. Um, and one of the examples that from the very beginning was this um, this phrase at the beginning of each one of the letters uh, to the angel at the church in Ephesus, the angel in the church of Sardis. Uh, that Greek word is angeloi, that Greek word to the angel, to the angeloi. Uh, that Greek word simply means messenger. It means messenger. Um, however, in many places in scripture, the, it means a very specific kind of messenger. Uh, the angelic beings that God uses as his messengers. And that's why they're called angeloi messengers, because that's how God uh, characterizes those angelic beings. However, the Greek word angeloi, as I mentioned, just means messenger. And so we're left to struggle with, does, does it mean in a particular context an angelic messenger? Or does it simply mean a human messenger? Because it means messenger. That's what the actual meaning of the text is. And in this case, um, there's a split among the commentators. And I, um, my judgment from reading all the commentaries was it's most likely the meaning is a human messenger in this context. And so I pointed that out, but I also pointed out that others disagree. Now, that doesn't mean there's two meanings to that, to that passage. There's only one meaning, uh, but sometimes people wrestle with what that meaning is. Um, does, it, does everybody understand that, uh, the distinction I'm making there? I just want to make sure that, that uh, nobody gets the impression that I have said that there could be two meanings to uh, a passage of Scripture. There's only one meaning, many applications, and sometimes we struggle and wrestle with what is the meaning. Okay. All right, last time we did the Church of Philadelphia, and uh, Christ identifies himself as he does at the beginning of each letter. He, he is holy, um, and of course, only that refers to God. He's the only one that's absolutely holy, so it's a statement of Jesus' divinity. Um, he also identifies as he who is true. Uh, truth in combination with holiness is a common theme here in the book of Revelation. It's in Revel here and also in Revelation 6, 15, 16, 19. Combination of holy and true. And we see that here. He also defines himself as he who has the key of David. Uh, a key in scripture represents authority uh, and David uh, symbolizes the messianic line. And then finally, uh, he who opens a door, no one shuts. He who shuts a door, no one opens. Um, and so this Christ uh, has absolute authority, sovereign control over his church. This is the picture we get from his introduction last week to this letter to the church in Philadelphia. And the fact that this, uh, this true, holy, sovereign, omnipotent Lord of the church found nothing to condemn in the Philadelphia church must have been a joyous encouragement to them. Um, as we said last time, there's, um, and as has been a, the case all the way through here after Ephesus, there's no uh, specific information in scripture about how this church started, the one in Philadelphia with the exception of Acts 19 that tells us that the gospel went out to the province of Asia from the church in Ephesus. Um, we have some extra-biblical um, uh, writings about Philadelphia that the early church father Ignatius went there uh, on his way to Rome, um, and then he later wrote a letter back to that church when he got to Rome. 
Um, we have the uh, record of some Christians from the church in Philadelphia being martyred along with the early church father Polycarp. And we know that this church persisted, it lasted. This faithful church that was faithful in the first century was able to withstand um, the Muslim uh, takeover of the whole area in the 600s and 700s and was still a thriving church all the way to the 1400s. Um, now it did eventually disappear, but it persisted for centuries and centuries and centuries as opposed to some of the other churches we looked at that had winked out in less than 100 years after the book of Revelation. Um, it was situated in a, in a um, kind of a strategic location in terms of culture. It was, uh, it was founded to be a center of Greek culture and language, um, and it was at the junction of several roads, several important roads. So it was a good strategic location um, from a secular point of view, but also from a gospel point of view. Uh, many people passing in all these strategic roads, and there's a church, uh, a faithful church, that can spread the gospel. Um, and so this church, this one um, goes right to, um, there's no concern, so it goes right to commendations. Um, their deeds, there's nothing uh, wrong with their deeds that, that Christ points out here. Uh, he points out that they have little power, however, they're also impacting the city, even without uh, kind of the secular idea of what would be power. They've kept the word, and they've not denied the name. So they've been faithful. He identifies them in all these ways to show, uh, to encourage them and say that you've been faithful. Uh, because of that faithfulness, there's promises there that there's an open door that no one can shut. So Christ first commends them for being faithful, and then he gives them some um, promises based on their uh, faithfulness. Uh, their salvation is secure. Uh, he goes through this idea of uh, the persecution that they have from what he identifies here and in uh, one other letter that we've already seen, the synagogue of Satan, just like in Smyrna. Um, Christians in Philadelphia um, faced hostility from unbelieving Jews. So this is the second time we've, we've seen that. Uh, and in spite of all that, the members had kept the word of his perseverance. They, in other words, they had persevered under uh, persecution. And then we get to this uh, keeping you from an hour of testing. Uh, we see this, uh, I think um, it's, it's clear that it's an expansion from just beyond just this church. Because it uses this phrase, come upon the whole world. Something coming upon the whole world is obviously not just the Church of Philadelphia. Um, and so uh, this is why uh, most commentators who, who look at this passage say, hey, now we're talking about the tribulation because of the way it's phrased. That he's going to keep them from a certain hour, and that's a certain hour that's coming upon the whole world. So what is it in the book of Revelation that's coming upon the whole world? So we're going to see that in Revelation 6 to 19 in the Great Tribulation. Um, the verse promises that the church will be delivered from that. Um, and so what is it that we've seen in other places in Scripture that the church is going to be delivered from? Well, we see uh, the description of the rapture prior to the tribulation in John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, and primarily uh, in great detail in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So we talked about that last time. 
then we have this promise that those who persevere to the end, uh, who have general, uh, genuine salvation, will, um, uh, no one will take their crown. Um, they will become a pillar in the temple of God. All these promises about their future uh, glorification. Um, and so they've had these enemies uh, internally. They've, uh, they've had earthquakes in that, that region. We talked about for several of the churches where uh, the cities were destroyed by an earthquake in 17 AD. But uh, they will not go out, um, the promise that they will not go out from heaven, uh, under, that would be understood to be their eternal salvation and glory. And then he talks about uh, writing the name of God, the name of the city of God, the New Jerusalem, and in fact his new name, Christ's name. So this is a assurance of salvation, assurance of salvation, assurance of salvation for this faithful church. Uh, he's, he's encouraging them um, over and over and over again, essentially, um, that uh, their, their salvation is secure no matter what they're facing now. So this uh, letter that we saw last time reveals the holy, true, and omnipotent God. He's pouring out blessings on this faithful church. Uh, he has no, um, uh, no overt concern about this church, only commendation and the wonderful promises. Um, and so that was the kind of the, um, the best case scenario for all these, these churches that we've seen. Um, any questions, before I go on, any questions about last week's lesson and last week's church? Okay. Uh, so today we're going to have the last church, Laodicea Church. We're going to go from the best church to the worst church. Um, so, unfortunately. Uh, so if you'll open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 14 with the last of the seven letters. So... Remember that uh, we've talked about the fact that there are seven messengers to these seven churches. They go around to the seven churches, most likely dropping off the leader of that particular church at each of his churches. And so now we're down to just the leader, the messenger for this one church. And he's got a really negative message to give to this this one church and he's by himself now uh, so uh, revelation chapter 3 verse 14 to the angel angeloi messenger of the church in laodicea write the amen the faithful and true witness the beginning of the creation of god says this i know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot i wish that you were cold or hot so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcome, overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's the word of the Lord to the final of these seven churches, the Lord of the church. So there's Laodicea at the very end of this road. Uh, there's no praise for this church. The criticism is, is they are lukewarm. We're going to talk about what he means by that. Uh, exhortation is to repent, be earnest and repent. Uh, and the reward, should there be repentance, is to be seated with Christ. So, um, as an introduction to this little section of Scripture, uh, John MacArthur in his commentary writes, he, re he refers back to um, the saga of Israel in the Old Testament. Perhaps the most tragic theme in all redemptive history is the sad story of wayward Israel. The Jewish people were the recipients of unprecedented spiritual privileges. Uh, the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises whose are the fathers, and whom and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. That's Romans 9. That's Paul talking about Israel in Romans 9. God chose them from all the world's peoples, rescued them from Egypt, brought them into the promised land, loved them, and cared for and protected them. Yet despite those privileges, Israel's history was one of continual rebellion against God. Finally, God brought devastating judgment upon his rebellious and unrepentant people. First, Israel fell to the Assyrians, 722 B.C. Then Judah was carried into captivity by the Babylonians, 586 B.C., and Jerusalem destroyed. Second uh, Kings 17 recites the sad litany of sins that brought God's judgment on his people. And then bringing it forward to this uh, church. Tragically, the sorrowful unbelief of Israel finds a parallel in the church. There are many people in churches, even entire congregations, who are lost. They may be sincere, zealous, and outwardly religious, but they reject the gospel truth. They have all the rich new covenant teaching about Christ's life, death, and resurrection contained in Bibles they neither believe nor obey. As a result, they are doomed, just as unbelieving Israel was. Paul described them as those holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And then wisely counseled believers to avoid such men as these, 2 Timothy chapter 3. The church in Laodicea represents such apostate churches as have existed throughout history. It's the last and worst of the seven churches addressed by our Lord. And so all of these churches are real churches that actually existed in the first century, but they're also types of churches that have existed all the way out through history and exist today. Uh, there are dead churches, unfortunately, uh, today. Lukewarm churches. Um, and we'll talk about what that, that means as we go through. Um, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. And I think that's why Christ did this, put it in the, in the book of Revelation so we could see uh, what type of churches existed then, so we can see what kind of ch churches and what kind of dangers uh, churches have always faced, will always face, um, and, and provide a suitable warning uh, to avoid such things as the dangers that these churches fell into. Yeah. Everybody see that? 
Okay, so uh, we have the first verse to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. So Christ is introducing himself like he does in each one of these seven letters. Um, and the first five were all taken from the vision in uh, different phrases from the vision in, uh, in Revelation 1, 12 to 17. Philadelphia was different. He did not use phrases from Revelation 1, 12 to 17 for the Philadelphia introduction. And he does not use phrases from Revelation 1, 12 to 17 in this introduction. It's different. Uh, he used uh, three divine titles, essentially. He describes himself as the Amen. Uh, that's a unique title in Scripture for Christ, only here, only in this passage. Uh, of course, Amen itself occurs many other places. Uh, it's a transliteration from Hebrew into Greek. So it's a transliteration of a Hebrew word. And that Hebrew word means truth, affirmation, or certainty. So when you're saying Amen, you're saying truth. Preach it. Truth. What you just said, is you're, you're identifying that as true. Uh, when you say amen at the end, you're saying truth. Amen. That was the truth um, that he just said, or they just said. Affirmation or certainty. Uh, it refers to that which is firm, fixed, and unchangeable. Um, amen is often used in Scripture to affirm the truthfulness of a statement. Uh, we see that in Old and New Testament, the Hebrew word and the Greek word that's derived from that Hebrew word. Uh, Numbers 5, Nehemiah 8, Matthew 5 and 6, uh, Mark 9, Luke 4, John 1, 3, 5, Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, all use Amen. Um, either the Hebrew form or the Greek form. Uh, the Greek form of Amen is rendered differently, differently in different English translations. In the King James Version, that Greek word is rendered verily. So if you see the word verily, verily, I say to you, from the King James, if anybody grew up using the King James, you remember that, verily, verily? That's the Greek word, amen. Um, in the New American Standard, it's truly, 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 I say to you. That's amen, amen, I say to you, in the Greek, transliterated from the Hebrew. Um, and so when you see those words come out in Scripture, verily, verily, or truly, truly, uh, that's amen, amen. Uh, amen, amen is, is there. Um, and so whatever God says is true and certain. That's, that's the emphasis of this amen. He is the God of truth. Um, and so uh, Christ, of course, is certainly the amen in the sense that he is God incarnate. So it's a, a, a title, a, a statement of his divinity. Uh, but there's actually more to it than that, I think. Second um, Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says uh, of Christ, For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. So um, this idea that um, through the person and work of Christ that all God's promises and covenants are fulfilled and guaranteed. All the Old Testament promises of forgiveness, mercy, loving kindness, grace, hope, eternal life, they're all bound up in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Those are the fulfillment of all of those promises, all those truths that have been revealed all throughout history. God's revealing of his plan of redemption, those are all fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So he is the amen, the verification, the certainty of all those truths. 
all the way down through. So this is a really wonderful way for Christ to be identified here as the certainty, the amen to all that God has said. Uh, you see that? See how, how nice that is? The amen, because he is the one who confirmed all of God's promises. This is just a wonderful way for Christ to identify himself. He also identifies himself as the faithful and true witness. Uh, so that expands on the thought expressed in the first title. Not only is Jesus the amen because of his work, but also because of everything he speaks is the truth. He's the true witness. The witness is the one who stand, gets up on the stand and proclaims the truth. So he is the truth, but he's also proclaiming the truth. He's completely trustworthy, perfectly accurate, and his testimony is always reliable as the witness, the true witness. Uh, in John 14, he's identified as the way, the truth, and the life. So he is the truth. So this is an appropriate, appropriate way to begin this letter to Laodicea uh, because it's imperative that they understand that he has made an accurate and true assessment of their condition. There can be no doubt about his witness, his assessment of where they stand. It also affirmed that his offer of fellowship and salvation in verse 20 was true uh, because God's promises were confirmed through Christ's work. So uh, the, uh, the offer that he makes to this unredeemed church, therefore, is also true. And then the final one, so the, the third and final uh, title he gives to himself, is the beginning of the creation of God. The beginning of the creation of God. Um, so there could be some confusion here. Uh, the English translation could be misleading. Uh, it could almost sound like, well, does that sound like Jesus is a created being? And in fact, unstable and ungodly people have taken this phrase to mean, aha, we see Jesus is a created being here. Um, but that's not the case. The actual Greek it is not ambiguous. There's no room, there's no wiggle room like there could be in the English translation. In the Greek, there's no wiggle room. Arche does not mean that Christ was the first person God created, but rather that Christ himself is the source or origin of creation. So if, if you read that, uh, that word as the origin of the creation of God, then there's no ambiguity, there's no, uh, there's no doubt. If you know that the Greek word that's translated here, beginning, has the sense of the origin of creation. The, the beginning in the sense of he began the creation. He, he originated the creation. He's the beginning of creation, the originator of creation. Um, through his power, everything was created, the source or origin. So if you look at the actual Greek word, that beginning is fine as long as the understanding of beginning means he was the beginninger, the, the one who began, who began the thing. Um, not beginning in the sense that God started this up and the first thing he started with was to create Jesus. That's what some people have falsely said that this, this means. But that doesn't fit that Greek word, arche. does not fit. The, but the sense of that Greek word in Greek is the, um, the originator, the source or originator. That's what that Greek word means, source or originator. 
through his power, everything was created. We see that in other places in Scripture. So if we were to try to take it that way, it w- as Jesus is a created being, it would uh, refute other parts of Scripture. It's not incompatible in with other parts of Scripture. Um, John 1, for example, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. Uh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So uh, Hebrews 1-2 as well, that all things were created through him. Um, so it, uh, it, there, has been, there have been people that have deliberately confused the issue uh, based on the English translation of that Greek word, but uh, in the Greek there's no confusion. Uh, the letter to the Laodiceans was much in common with Paul's letter to Colossians. So Colossae is a city that's right close by um, uh, Laodicea, uh, sister city just a few miles away. Um, and Paul wrote some things to the letter uh, in his letter to the church in Colossae um, that uh, may some of the issues in Colossae may have spilled over to the church that was right next door. We don't know for certain, uh, but in in Colossians, Paul points out that there was uh, a form of Gnosticism there. Uh, Colossians chapter four, from the Greek word gnosis, knowledge, that taught that Christ was a created being. Um, its uh, proponents also claim that they possessed a secret, sp- higher spiritual knowledge above and beyond the simple words of the scripture. So the Gnostic heresy evidently existed in Colossae, and Colossae is the next town over from Laodicea. So there, that could have been a problem. Not specifically identified here, but it could have been a problem. Just like it was in Colossae, uh, the sister city to Laodicea. Um, just as the last uh, five churches we looked at, uh, this church, uh, there's no record in the New Testament about its founding. So we, uh, may, we have to make assumptions. Uh, we read in Acts chapter uh, 19 that the gospel went out from Ephesus into the whole province of Asia. Uh, Laodicea is a city in the province of Asia, so most likely it went out from Ephesus. Uh, Paul, We know Paul did not found it. Uh, since when he wrote Colossians, the city uh, to the city right next to it, uh, he had not visited Laodicea, but he was hoping to. Uh, since Paul's co-worker Epaphras founded the church in Colossae, so in Colossians 1 we see that Epaphras, a man, a, f- a friend of Paul's name, Epaphras, founded the church in Colossae, which was the town right next to Laodicea, uh, we can make a educated guess that perhaps Epaphras also started the church in the town next door in Laodicea, but we don't know for sure. Uh, There's also a suggestion from historical writing that uh, a man named Archippus, who was the son of Philemon, uh, was a pastor there. Um, We have a a book from the 4th century, so the 300s, called the Apostolic Constitutions. Um, And that book has a list of the pastors from ancient churches, going all the way back to the beginning. Um, So it says, such and such a church, pastor today, pastor before that, pastor before that, pastor before that, going all the way back. Uh, So that's an extra biblical writing. And in that book, it says that the pastor at this time was a man named Archippus, who was the son of Philemon, identified in the book of Philemon as the son of Philemon. but that's not scripture. That's another. That's a book. It's a historical book uh, that says so. Uh, the city itself. Uh, it was in the, the Lycus Valley, the Lycus River Valley, 
uh, southeasternmost of the seven cities, about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia along the road. It had two sister cities that were right next to it, uh, Colossae, uh, the, call, the, the, the book of Colossians written to the church in Colossae was about 10 miles to the east and the city of Hierapolis about 6 miles to the north. So a little triangle of cities uh, there together. Uh, it was located on a pl plateau several hundred feet high like many of these cities were up in, uh, built up on a hillside so you could look around and you could see the enemies coming and all that kind of thing. So it was geographically impregnable. However, it was vulnerable because they didn't have any water, actually, in the city, and they had to pipe water in through a system of aqueducts from several miles away, and those aqueducts could be easily blocked by somebody that was coming against the city and cut off the water supply, so they were uh, vulnerable that way. Uh, the city was founded by a Seleucid uh, uh, ruler um, called Antiochus II, and he named it after his wife, his first wife, whom he divorced. <laughs> and he divorced her in 253 B.C. So we, uh, we make the educated guess that he probably named the city before he divorced her. <laughs> so probably the city was founded and named after before he sent her packing. Um, so most likely founded before that, that date, Laodicea. Named after the wife of a ruler named Antiochus II. Uh, so its original settlers were actually from Syria. That was where Antiochus II came from, although a significant number of Jews also settled there. We have tax records from uh, Jews from Laodicea sending their temple tax to Jerusalem. That's how we know there was a significant uh, uh, Jewish population there. And, and there being a big controversy that um, the Romans tried to... Uh, um, take that temple tax for themselves uh, and caused a big, uh, big controversy. Um, so there was a Jewish population there. All right, so what else do we know about this uh, city? Uh, with the coming of Pax Romana, the peace under Rome, so Rome took over the whole Mediterranean area, and then there was essentially peace because Rome owned everything. Uh, there was uh, peace inside in many places where there had previously been conflict. Uh, it was located the, at the junction of two important roads, an east-west road leading from Ephesus, the, the first church that was on the, uh, the coast of what is today Turkey. There was a, a, a road that went east from there, and uh, Laodicea was on that road. And it was also on the north-south road from Pergamum that went all the way down to the Mediterranean Sea, the south coast of modern-day Turkey. So it was the intersection of those, uh, these roads. Um, and the location made it an important commercial city. So it was actually a very rich commercial city. And we have some extra biblical writing that talk about the, the banking system there in Laodicea. First century BC Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero, who left a lot of writings, he would cash his letters of credit there because Laodicea was such an important strategic banking center. So if he had, to, he, had to, he had these letters of credit from Rome, if he wanted to get his cash, he would go to Laodicea. Big, important banking center, Laodicea. Uh, so wealthy did Laodicea become that it paid its own reconstruction after a big earthquake in 60 AD. The Romans offered to help, and they said, no, we don't need, we got tons of money, we don't need your help, we can rebuild our own city. That was how wealthy Laodicea was. Um, 
it was also famous for a couple of things, for um, soft black wool that it produced. The wool was made into clothes and woven into carpets and they were much sought after. Laodicean black wool, very famous. Uh, it was also an important center of ancient medicine. Uh, there was a nearby temple to a Phrygian god named Menkaru, um, and there was a medical school associated with it, and it was most famous for an eye salve that they developed, uh, which was exported all over the Greco-Roman world. So famous Laodicean uh, medical eye salve. Um, and all three of the industries there will come up in Christ's letter. Uh, the finance industry, the wool industry, and ISAL very specifically mentioned in this letter by Christ. And so uh, we see Christ do that in his earthly ministry, right? He takes things that people know and he makes illustrations. He makes parables based on the real life experiences of the people he's talking to. He does that in this letter to Laodicea also. All right, so, so it's important to know kind of that background information to know what Christ is getting at here with these uh, illustrations that he uses in this letter. So uh, into the, uh, uh, the content of the letter. So starting in verse 15, we get, so he's, Christ has introduced himself, and now he gets into the, uh, the content of the letter. I know your deeds. And he started many letters like this. Uh, I know what's going on. I can see right into your heart. I know what's happening. I know your deeds. Um, that they are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So there's nothing to commend here. So many of the letters start with, even if there's something, uh, there's a problem with the church, many of the letters will start with what's right with the church. Not here. Nothing about what's right with the church here. Um, so he launches right into his concerns. Um, and he starts with deeds. Deeds always reveal people's true spiritual state. Uh, as indicated by the Lord's words in Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruits. Uh, and he's identified their deeds. Um, I know your deeds. Um, so, and of course, salvation, we've talked about this before, is by grace, by, by grace through faith alone. Deeds, however, confirm or deny the presence of genuine faith. That's what the point that James makes in James chapter 2. The omniscient Lord of, uh, of the church, Jesus Christ, he knew their deeds and that they indicated an unregenerate church in this case. Uh, so his rebuke, his specific rebuke here is you're neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm. This is a metaphor. Uh, this is something that they would have um, quickly understood. Um, this language is drawn from Laodicea's water supply. It, it traveled, the water supply had to travel several miles through an underground aqueduct to reach the city. The water arrived at the city foul and dirty and tepid. It was not hot enough to relax and restore like the hot springs at Hierapolis. So there's these three cities. Hierapolis is famous for hot springs. They've got hot water. Uh, Colossae, the other sister city, has a nice cold stream that flows into it. And so they have cold water, but not Laodicea. Laodicea has lukewarm water coming out of this aqueduct system. And so Christ is using a word picture here that would be easily understood by the Laodicean audience that it went to. So yeah, he's using this picture, neither cold nor hot, spew you out. 
and it's a illustration that that fits uh, that that fits like a glove to this uh, church he's talking to. Uh, so he's comparing, but of course he what he's really getting at is spiritual condition, um, spiritual state to this. He's comparing spiritual state to the city's foul, tepid water, um, and it gives them a powerful, shocking rebuke. You are lukewarm, and I will spit you out of my mouth. I will. Some translations say spew, spew you out of my mouth. Um, and so, uh, using the, the spiritual um, analogies making here, hot people are those who are spiritually alive and possess the fervency of a transformed life. The spiritually cold are probably best understood of those who outright reject Christ. Um, they have no interest in Christ or His Word. They make no pretense to have, uh, have listened to His Word. And so, they're not a hypocrites. They've just outright rejected and the lukewarm here fit in neither one of those categories. They are not saved, like hot, um, and they do not openly reject the gospel like the cold. They attend church, claim to know the Lord. Like the Pharisees, they practice a self-righteous religion. So uh, the, they're hypocrites playing games here, and um, it's, it's interesting. Let me... Um, let me just maybe I'll maybe I'll say it here. So um, there is there's very interesting statistics that sometimes tell the truth and sometimes don't tell the whole truth. Um, there is a long-standing statistic that says that those who are Christians have the same divorce rate in America as the general population. You, everybody heard that statistic before? Um, and so the, the way the study was originally done, um, every, everybody just, it, it was very general. You were either, uh, you know, uh, Jewish or is, Islam or atheist or Christian. You just check what your religion was. And when you do it at that level, people who self-identified just checking a block Christian, the divorce rate is the same for Christians and for everybody else. Um, there was a follow-up study done because that seemed that seems odd. Could that really be true? Uh, the follow-up study asked the group who checked the block saying they were Christians some follow-up questions like, how often do you go to church, how often do you read the Bible, and how often do you pray? And it turns out that in the group that said they attend church regularly, pray regularly, and read the scripture regularly, the divorce rate was really small, really small among that group. Among the group that self-identified as Christian but said they never went to church, never read the Bible, and never prayed, their divorce rate was actually higher than the general population. Higher. Uh, than the general population, pulling the, the the divorce rate for those who just checked the block Christian up, way up, to so that it was level with the whole rest of the secular world. So what does that tell you about the dangers of being a Christian in name only, but not really redeemed? You, you, people like that tend to think they're safe and end up in worse shape than the rest of the world. A higher divorce rate than the secular world among those who check a block saying they're Christians but never go to church, never read the Bible, and never pray. 
Uh, very interesting, I think, and, and applicable here. Okay, uh, so the Lord describes such people in Matthew seven twenty two to 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Th- this is the people in the church in Laodicea. It's Christ spewing them out of his mouth. It, it, that's what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 7. People that claim his name, but are, he doesn't know them. They're not, they're not saved. They don't have saving faith. They, they may claim the name of Christ like these, this church in Laodicea did, uh, but they're not saved, and that's very dangerous. Smug, self-righteous hypocrites, more difficult to reach with the gospel than cold-hearted rejectors. The, the latter may at least be shown they are lost, but those whose self-righteousness think they are saved are often protective of their religious feelings and unwilling to recognize their real true condition. Uh, it's in some ways more dangerous than somebody who's openly rejected the gospel. Uh, that's the lesson that, that we're getting here. They're not cold enough to feel the bitter sting of their sin. Uh, so there's no one further from the truth than one who makes an idle profession but never experiences genuine saving faith. They think they're safe, but they're not. And that's uh, in some ways more dangerous. Um, because uh, why would you pursue any any kind of repentance or, or any kind of saving faith if you think you're already there? You're in that kind of self-deception. Okay. Um, and so then he continues, because, as verse 17, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So they think one thing. But a totally other thing is actually true of them. They, they have a, a really, really warped um, self-perception. They think that they're rich and wealthy and don't need anything. And in fact, Christ says they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Um, it's compounded by self-deception. So he rebukes them. Um, with this, uh, their, their inaccurate self-assessment. You say, I am rich and have need of nothing. However, I, Christ, say that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Uh, so which one is true? Which one is true about this set of people in this church? Their own self-assessment or Christ's assessment? Uh, well, I think it's pretty obvious. They, <laughs> they have a, a dangerously warped self-assessment. Just like the people in Matthew 7 who Christ says will come to him at the end uh, and say, hey, you know, didn't we, weren't we in the church in Laodicea? Didn't we, didn't we come to the church in Laodicea? Yeah, I never knew you. Away, away from you. Away from me, yes. So, yeah, we do see the prosperity gospel in these, in these days, and um, it's a very dangerous thing to conflate uh, physical riches with spiritual riches. They're, they're not the same thing. And we see a movement, it's probably been around forever, but there's some famous uh, um, examples of it in uh, 21st century America of people that conflate material wealth with spiritual riches. And, uh, and nothing could be further than from the teaching in Scripture. <clears throat> yeah, very good. Any other 
Thoughts, questions? Yes, Raymond. Yeah, yeah, we do have the, legs, the leg lengthening guy who has all the videos on YouTube of all the people whose legs he's lengthened. And, um, and, and one begins to wonder, how, how many people are there out there with legs different lengths? I mean, <laughs> I, I, don't, I, can't, I can't recall ever meeting anyone who their big problem in life was their legs were different lengths. I mean, there probably are some. But he, he has like hundreds of YouTube videos of lengthening people's legs. Um, and so, you know, this, this idea of, of faith healing, I, I remember hearing uh, John MacArthur address this, and, and his retort was, well, why aren't they at the hospitals? I mean, if they can heal people by putting their hand on them, why aren't they going through every hospital? There's hospitals all over with sick people in them. Why don't they just walk into the hospital and heal all those people? Um, they don't. They'll only heal within this kind of secret service that you can't really tell what they're doing. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so their deeds contradicted their words. Uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, declared Jesus. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Uh, the he who does, he who obeys, the, the deeds will be there. Um, not just saying, Lord, Lord, uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, the rich young ruler is another good example, Matthew chapter 19. Um, so the rich young ruler, if you remember, he came to Jesus and he wanted to know how he could earn his way into heaven. And so Jesus rattled off some uh, requirements of the law. And do you remember what the rich young ruler said back to Jesus when he rattled off the requirements of the law? Yeah, all, those. All, all these I have kept, he said to Jesus. Right to Jesus' face. All these I have kept. As if he had kept the, all of the law. And then he said a very interesting thing to, to Jesus. What do I lack? What, what then do I lack? So he had some kind of self-awareness that he, he lacks something. Um, and so what did Jesus say? Go and sell all your possessions. So give some deeds that are in keeping with righteousness. Let me see some deeds that will show uh, your repentance and obedience. And, what, and the particular deed that he recommended was one that he knew would be difficult for this rich young ruler. He went away sad because his possessions were great. Um, so, yeah, so he had a, a, a warped self-assessment. All these things I've kept, yeah, right? Jesus said, here, all you have to do to earn your way to heaven is keep all the law. Oh, yeah, I've done that. I don't think so. Um, self-deception there. Uh, same thing there, same thing here with uh, Laodicea. We don't, we don't need anything. Uh, as previously noted, it was a very wealthy city. Uh, material possessions. This was a wealthy banking city. Um, and that may have given the members of this church this false sense of security as they imagined that their spiritual wealth mirrored their city's or their own material wealth. Dangerous place to be um, thinking that because you're well off, because things are going well in a, uh, a physical way, a material way, that means that I'm okay spiritually. Those things are not the same, uh, but they may have gotten uh, that sort of idea, false idea. Uh, they were rich in spiritual pride, but bankrupt in saving grace. Believing they were to be envied, they were in fact to be pitied. We're wealthy and we don't need anything. That was their assessment, but what was Christ's assessment? Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. That was Christ's assessment of them. 
Um, they probably looked down on unsophisticated people, um, uh, like those who were um, satisfied with biblical teaching and the person and work of Christ. But the reality was, as Jesus pointed out, they were spiritually, so this is his spiritual assessment, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Um, and so, what does he advise? So he gives them some advice. Um, and here's Christ's advice, starting in verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich. They thought they were already rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves. They thought they were already clothed in these rich uh, uh, black wool things. Um, but Christ said they were naked. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Uh, so he could have instantly and uh, judged and destroyed this church. right? Fire could have fallen from heaven like Sodom and Gomorrah and wiped out this church. Um, Christ would have been justified in doing that. Um, instead, he graciously offers them genuine salvation. He says, you're blind, naked, uh, poor. Here's what you need to do. Uh, here's the offer of salvation. And so he once again uses a word picture that uh, fits like a glove to the people in Laodicea. Um, three features of Laodicea are right here in his advice to them. Um, the city is known for its wealth. Um, you need to buy gold from me. The city is known for its wool industry. You need to get white garments from me. The city is known for its eye salve. You need to get eye salve from me to anoint your eyes so that you can truly see. See what he's done here? He's gone right into the source of their pride and said that, that you're, you're wretched and you really need these things that you're so proud about. You, you, need, you need real... Um, real spiritual uh, gold from me, real spiritual clothing from me, real spiritual sight from me. Of course, he's not teaching salvation by earning good works. He, he's not teaching that, obviously. That would be in contradiction to everything else in Scripture. Uh, lost sinners have nothing with which to buy salvation. That's not what he's teaching here. He's using an illustration from secular things, uh, the, the conditions of that city, to teach spiritual truths. Uh, all sinners have to offer is their own wretched lost conditions. That's all we have. Uh, and in exchange for that, Christ offers his righteousness to those who truly repent. His gold, his garments. Uh, nothing, I can't buy those things. I have nothing to buy with. Um, Christ offers them. So he, ad he advised them, he, but he uses the language of uh, commerce there um, to buy from him these three things. How do we buy from him those three things? By repentance. Um, by being saved by, by grace through faith. Um, that's how we buy those things from Christ. Uh, so they, they represent, they symbolize true redemption. Uh, first, they need to purchase gold refined by fire so that they might become rich. Uh, they needed gold that was free of impurities, representing the priceless riches of true salvation. Uh, similar to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, faith more precious than gold. 
um, this idea that faith is more precious than gold. So he offered these Laodiceans a pure and true salvation that would bring them into real relationship with him. They're in danger of, he's going to spew them out of his mouth, he's going to tell them, I never knew you, but he's offering them true salvation. Second, he advised them to buy white garments, to buy from him white garments so that they might clothe themselves and the shame of their nakedness would not be revealed. Uh, once again, the famous black wool industry of uh, Laodicea in a spiritual sense then re would represent um, their filthy sinful garments which are unregenerate and instead he talks about white garments symbolizing the righteous deeds that always accompanied genuine saving faith as we see all the way forward in Revelation chapter 19 with white garments we'll see that again um, but he's making he's painting a word picture for these people that is perfectly suited to their own situation um, so that they should, there should be no way they can misunderstand what he's saying. Uh, it's so personal to them. Uh, he, and then, he, and then Isalve is, is the final one. And th this is a city that's famous for making this Isalve that gets sent all over the Greco-Roman Greco world. And he bores right in on that. Um, he offers Isalve to anoint their eyes so that they might see. So this is another source of pride for the Laodiceans, uh, the, the, that they had this uh, eye salve, but, they, but it, there's a spiritual reality there, uh, that they most likely were involved in the same thing that the Colossians, the city over next door, was kind of tainted by this Gnosticism, that they had some sp uh, superior spiritual knowledge. And Christ is saying, no, you're blind. You need eye salve. You need some spiritual eye salve because you're, you're totally blind. Uh, blindness in scripture is a picture, a symbol of um, lack of understanding, lack of knowledge of spiritual truth in many passages of scripture. Matthew 15, Matthew 23, uh, Luke chapter 6, John chapter 9, Romans chapter 2, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 John 2. The symbol of blindness is used uh, to, to illustrate blindness to spiritual truth. Uh, and that's what uh, we see here, too. Um, and then Acts chapter 26, like all uh, unregenerate people, the Laodiceans desperately needed Christ, as Acts chapter 26 says, to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in Him. That's Acts chapter 26. And that applies here to this church in Laodicea. Uh, verse 19, um, then he has this kind of uh, promise for what will happen um, if, um, if they repent. So they need to repent, and what will happen if they repent? So those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. So this is the promise. This is what will happen if you repent. If you take my advice, I've just advised you what you need to do. If you take this, my advice, this is what will happen. Uh, some argue that the language of Christ's uh, direct appeal to the Laodiceans in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, indicates they were believers. However, 
That's contradicted by verses 18 and 20. So um, scripture is always consistent. And so we've seen consistently in the verse before and the verse after them identified uh, pretty clearly, I think, as unregenerate. Then verse 19 can't mean the opposite. Uh, it can't be. Um, so it seems better suited uh, as the whole passage being to the unregenerate, uh, desperately need of the gold of true riches, the garments of true righteousness, the eye salve that brings spiritual understanding. Um, but because the Laodiceans outwardly identified with Christ's church and his kingdom, they were in the sphere of his concern. They get a letter. They get a letter from the Lord of the church, even though they're an unregenerate church. He has his eye on them. Uh, he's concerned for them. To reprove means to expose and convict. It is a general term for God's dealing with sinners. In other places in Scripture, John 3, John 16, 1 Corinthians 14, Titus 1, Jude 15. Discipline refers to punishment uh, and is used of God's convicting of unbelievers in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, thus, the terminology of verse 19 does not demand that Christ be referring to believers. And I think from the context of verse 18 and verse 20, he's not uh, dealing with, with believers. Um, the Lord is compassionately, tenderly calling those of this unregenerate church to come to saving faith, uh, lest he convict and judge them. Uh, we see that kind of heart of God come out in Ezekiel chapter 18 and Ezekiel chapter 3. Um, does the Lord uh, desire that any perish, uh, but he desires that all would repent and come to salvation? That uh, You get the, the sense of the heart of God there, and here's Christ coming to this unregenerate church that he could have sent fire from heaven to destroy, but instead he comes to them and uh, offers them repentance and salvation. Uh, but in order for the Laodiceans to be saved, they would have to be zealous and repent. There's some work that needs to be done here. You're, 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 in, you're, you're wretched and wicked and naked and blind right now. You need to, things need to change. There needs to be a repentance. Um, that, that kind of attitude of mourning over sin and hungering and thirsting for righteousness that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 5 uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so repentance, of course, is also not a meritorious work. Uh, the New Testament call to salvation always includes repentance. Uh, we see that in many scriptures. Um, it's not a meritorious In other words, we don't uh, earn our salvation by repenting. Uh, that's not um, uh, good doctrine. Uh, but repentance always accompanies and includes um, uh, salvation always accompanies and includes repentance. Uh, so that's why uh, Christ, um, uh, he, he focuses on that here. Uh, so he, Christ follows this call to repentance, verse 19, with a gracious invitation in verse 20. So, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Uh, I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm, I'm knocking on the door. Um, so they, the, the Laodicean church could have or should have probably expected him to come solely in judgment. Uh, but we have this, this, uh, this wonderful reality that he says, Behold, here I am knocking at the door. All you need to do is open the door. Um, and if you open the door, I will come in, dine with him, and he with me. Uh, so this invitation is, first of all, a personal one. Um, salvation is individual. 
So Christ comes to people as individuals. Um, you, you can't get into heaven on your parents' salvation or your brother or sister's salvation and repent, repentance and salvation. It's an individual thing. He's knocking on the door of individual people. And so that's why it says if one person, anyone, opened the door by repent, repentance and faith, faith, Christ would come in. But there's a picture here. There's a picture of Christ outside the door of a church. Uh, a, a kind of a word picture painted as well. Uh, Christ is not already inside this church. He's standing on the outside, knocking on the door of this, this church, um, uh, wanting to come in, offering them salvation to, uh, uh, if they'll repent. Uh, but he's on the outside right now of this church, uh, not inside there. Um, then we have he who overcomes, I will grant. So this promise, uh, wonderful promise that to he who overcomes, which is anybody that's a, a genuine believer. So if there is repentance and if they come to salvation, then they become he who overcomes and they're um, uh, heirs to these promises. Um, grant to sit down on his throne with him. Um, just like he sat down on the throne with the Father. There's wonderful promises for anybody that will come to him uh, in repentance. Respond, in other words, to him knocking on the door. Uh, to enjoy fellowship with Christ in his kingdom and throughout eternity is blessing, blessing beyond comprehension. And he, he, that's what he's offering. He's offering uh, sitting down on the throne with him here. Um, so, um, the right to sit on, on Christ's throne and heavenly throne is but one of many promises that we see to seven churches. Um, we've seen promises at the end of each of the letters, um, piling up promises, eating from the tree of life, the crown of life, protection from the second death, the hidden manna, the white stone with the new name on it, the authority to rule the nations, the morning star, white garments symbolizing purity and holiness, the honor of having Christ confess their names before God and the Father and the holy angels in heaven, to be made a pillar of God's temple and to have written on them the name of God and the new Jerusalem and of Christ. All these promises in each one of the letters, each one of the letters has all these promises for he who overcomes. He who overcomes will get each letter has all these promises. Um, and here he says he who overcomes will sit down on my throne with me. Um, and so um, that's one of the, the startling things about these letters to the seven churches is the piled up promises that Christ makes to encourage those who are steadfast in obedience to him these promises are amazing and and the culminating promise here in the seventh letter is uh, to him uh, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne uh, just like I sat down with my father on his throne when I demonstrated my obedience uh, perfect obedience to him in my life uh, life uh, and death, even to obedience to death on the cross, I got to sit down on the throne of my father. Just like that, anybody who uh, perseveres, uh, is faithful to me, and overcomes to the end, will sit down on my throne with me. What a promise that is. Absolutely amazing coming at the end of this letter to a terrible church. But he offers repentance, even to the people in this unregenerate church, and he comes with this unbelievable promise at the end to sit down 
on the throne with him. So, I've run us out of time. So, uh, I have uh, 30 seconds for a uh, comment or question. Okay, uh, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together around your word. And we thank you so much for all these wonderful promises. Uh, we thank you for uh, the fact that you've recorded from Genesis to Revelation your entire uh, plan of redemption. Uh, that we can we can read and see the entire thing. Uh, we thank you for uh, that wonderful plan. We thank you for the love that it took to send Christ to to live as a man, a perfect life, his life, uh, death on a cross, burial and resurrection, uh, all to save uh, worthless, uh, naked, blind sinner like me. Uh, we thank you so much for that kind of love, Lord. And uh, we thank you for the opportunity we have to, uh, in just a few moments to, uh, to worship you uh, publicly as a body of Christ. And we pray that that worship would be acceptable in your sight and that your name would be glorified in what we do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.